Welcome back to the 2AM Book Review Club, where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late. As I mentioned last episode, I do feel bad that there wasn't an episode last week, so this week you guys are getting a treat, namely two episodes in the same week. It's going to be a bit of a pain to record and edit, you know, two long episodes and get them out, but it's fine because I'm actually really enjoying our little mini-series because this episode, I, I keep wanting to say this week, but two episodes the same week means, you know, I can't say that. So anyway, this episode, we are continuing our mini-series on bad thrillers. If you have any bad thriller suggestions, please go to the Substack post linked in the description and leave me a comment with your suggestion. As I mentioned last episode, I kind of miscalculated. I didn't realize I need one more bad thriller. And while I am capable of finding bad thrillers on my own, I'm always up for whatever bad thrillers you guys have managed to find out there. So please leave me a suggestion if you have any bad thrillers you want me to cover in this mini-series or in an upcoming bad thriller mini-series. If you do leave a comment, please include the title, the author, and maybe a brief sentence, you know, um, about what made the thriller so bad. Okay, let's recap. Let's regroup. Last episode, we talked about what happened to the Bennets, which was not only a bad thriller, but it was not an enjoyable book for me in any aspect. This week, we are talking about a book that I have mixed but equally strong feelings about for reasons we are about to get into. This week's book is a recent release. Again, it's from 2021, and it's called The Maidens by Alex Michaelides. Michaelides. Hmm. <laughs> I'm no good at Greek names. If that name sounds familiar, despite my pronunciation, it's probably because his debut novel, The Silent Patient, was a massive, massive literary success. It was a phenomenon in the world of thrillers to the point where I, who have never read the book and I've never really been interested in reading the book, even I have heard of this book. I do want to clarify, I don't really have a reason for not having read The Silent Patient. It just never happened for me, I guess. But when I came across this book, The Maidens, on Libby, I decided to give it a shot. The Maidens is his second book, and I guess I just wanted to see what all the silent patient hype was about. And also, on the cover, they had a blurb from Lucy Foley about how she enjoyed this book even more than The Silent Patient. Personally, I've always 
kind of doubted the efficacy of slapping those blurbs from other authors on the cover, but hey, it worked on me and I'm kind of a skeptic, so I guess it does make a difference. I really enjoyed Lucy Foley's book, The Guest List, which was another phenomenon in the world of thrillers a couple of years ago. So I trusted her opinion and I guess, I guess I was maybe a little naive, a little too trusting of the publishing machine that goes around systemically collecting these blurbs and slapping them on covers because all apologies to Lucy Foley, but I did not enjoy The Maidens. And because we are doing a miniseries dedicated to ripping apart bad thrillers, let's get into why this book so utterly failed to thrill me. Before we proceed, I am going to give my usual spoiler alert, my usual spoiler warning. If you are at all interested in The Maidens, you are going to want to skip this episode because I am going to be spoiling everything. All the twists, all the red herrings, everything will be discussed in detail, so do not proceed if you are not okay with that. Spoiler warning, you have been warned. Also, like I did last episode, we are going to be doing a content warning as well. Even more strong content warning this episode. If you are not in the place for discussions on mental health, harmful representations of mental health and references to childhood abuse, you may want to skip this episode. Oh, and there are also brief mentions of self-harm and suicide as well, so there we go. Content warning for this episode, we are going to be dealing with some heavy, heavy themes today. Alright, with all of that out of the way, let's jump right in. Let's begin with the premise. The premise that managed to draw me in until it didn't anymore. The premise of The Maidens is that our protagonist, Mariana, is a therapist who is struggling after the unexpected death of her beloved husband, Sebastian. He drowned while they were on vacation in Greece. At the beginning of the book, she is called to Cambridge, her alma mater, by her niece Zoe after Zoe's best friend is found to be brutally murdered. And after Mariana gets there, the crimes escalate and people in Mariana's, uh, not Mariana, (laughs) people in Zoe's social circle also go missing only to be later found murdered. Mariana suspects that the murderer is Edward Fosca, who is one of Zoe's professors and who has formed a secret society of female students called, you guessed it, the Maidens. And the women who are being murdered are students who are part of this secret society, the Maidens. Mariana is desperate to protect Zoe since she's essentially Zoe's surrogate mother and she finds herself being drawn deeper into this mystery as she tries to figure out what's going on and why these murders are happening. Okay, straight off the bat, you may notice a couple of things. One, this premise 
it drew me in. It does have a lot going for it. Elite historical college, a secret society, a sinister professor, mysterious murders. Doesn't sound like the kind of book you want to read with the lights off. And honestly, my biggest issue with the book is just this, right? The author had such a cool premise that he obviously had no idea what to do with. And we'll, we'll get into that soon. But the second issue, you may have already noticed that the point of view character makes no sense. Ah yes, this random therapist who happens to be the aunt of a random student is going to be the person who figures out what's going on. I get why she would be worried about her niece, but come on. The obvious point of view character would be the niece, Zoe, right? Because she's already immersed in this world. She's the one navigating this scary situation. She's the one in immediate danger. She is the one who would actually be interesting to follow. But instead, we get Mariana. We will be getting into Mariana in a bit when we discuss the characters. And since I have so much to say about the characters, we will be getting into that later. For now, let's discuss the plot and structure, the execution of this premise. Let me read you the very first sentence of this book, okay? The very first sentence of the prologue, page one, sentence one. Here we go. Edward Fosca was a murderer. Okay. Pop quiz. Listen carefully, because this is a little bit of a tricky question, okay? Ready? Is Edward Fosca the murderer? I'll give you a moment to think about it. All right. What's your answer? Is Edward Fosca the murderer? No, of course he isn't. He is very clearly not the killer. If you tell me on page one that X x person is the murderer then x is very clearly not the murderer x is very clearly a red herring so big it probably wouldn't fit in the marina trench now i do want to clarify that technically speaking the maidens is a thriller not a mystery and it is definitely possible for thrillers to have murderers who are obviously murderers from page one however Generally speaking, when thrillers have murderers who are very clearly murderers, we get POV chapters from said murderers, or we witness the murders happening, or something like that. If the entirety of the book is murders are happening, Mariana thinks it's Fosca who's doing the murdering, and she goes around trying to collect evidence that he's the murderer, and then she finally catches him out, the end, then that's not a very interesting book, right? The only problem is that is pretty much the book, with the only difference being that Fosca isn't actually the murderer. Shocking, I know. And that's probably the number one issue with this book. It's just not very interesting. The majority of the book is just filler, as Mariana stumbles around trying to figure things out. And I say stumbles because she is truly incompetent when it comes to figuring things out. 
the author does try to make up for this lack of anything interesting happening in two ways. One, the structure of the book. I think pretty much everyone would call this a fast-paced book, not because things are happening at a fast pace, but because the chapters are so short that it feels like the book is passing by very quickly. I find this kind of hacky in that it's very clearly being done for the effect on the reader and the reading experience rather than for any actual narrative reason. But I guess I do appreciate that it helped me get through this book, so thanks, I guess. But the second way in which the author tries to make up for not much happening is via a truly ridiculous amount of red herrings and subplots and just filler. Filler as in information about psychology, information about Greek mythology, information about being a therapist, information about literature. You get the idea. We get stalkers, we get sinister servants, we get creepy professors. But here's the issue. The core problem with the story, literally none of it matters. The only things that matter narratively are the murders and the final confrontation between Mariana and the murderer. That's it. Everything else in this book is only there to waste your time and make you feel like you read a book rather than a half-baked idea that the author managed to expand to 500 pages. It feels very much like the author came up with the premise and the twist and then had no idea what to do to get from the setup to the climax. Here's the thing, right? I know that in both the mystery genre and also the thriller genre, misdirection is a big thing, an important thing. That's why we have red herrings, things or people that seem important but actually aren't. Red herrings are fundamental to both genres, and that makes complete sense. However, and this is a big however, however, the red herrings cannot just be there for no reason. Red herrings still have to have a satisfying payoff or tie into the overarching story or themes in some way. Consider, for example, a locked room mystery that takes place in a mansion, kind of like Clue, right? The board game. The crabby old man, the lord of the manor, gets murdered, and the suspects are his son, the maid, the butler, the chef, and the mysterious guest. Even if only one of those people actually committed the murder, we are still likely to find out interesting things along the way that enrich our understanding of the victim, the suspects, and the dynamics of this household. Maybe the butler was having a lifelong affair with the crabby old man. Maybe the maid is secretly the son's mother. Even if the actual murderer is the mysterious guest, we still come away from the story feeling like we've not only figured out the killer, we've also figured out the interpersonal relationships 
of a toxic household, which eventually boiled over into murder. The butler isn't a murderer, but he is a repressed person who was never able to express his love for or openly be with his soulmate. The maid isn't a murderer, but she is a mother who was never able to truly connect with her son. Those things could end up mattering just as much to the reader as who done it, especially if those secrets influence the murder to, you know, commit murder. My point is, authors try to put a lot of thought into who the killer was, but they also put a lot of thought into the red herrings as well. Because at the end of the day, a murder mystery or a thriller isn't just about the crazy plot twists. A murder mystery or thriller also needs to be a compelling story. Every book needs to be more than just the genre it happens to fit into. That's why, no matter what genre we are talking about, I always bring up the same things, right? Characters, plot, structure, and style. No matter the genre, the fundamental bones of the structure need to be solid. Which is why the red herrings in the maidens come together to make such a flat and boring reading experience. Let me tell you about the red herrings in this book. Let me describe to you what it's like to read the vast majority of this book. Red herring number one is stalker number one, Henry. Henry is one of Mariana's patients. Remember, Mariana is a therapist, and he was also severely abused as a child. At the beginning of the book, he freaks out about not being able to have individual therapy sessions with Mariana since she only does group therapy, and he shows her his self-harm scars. He's essentially trying to force her to do what he wants her to do. It's very intense and very clear that he's having a mental health crisis. He's obsessed with Mariana, he's hanging around our house, And every so often throughout the book, Mariana will be worried that Henry is following her or watching her. And he often is. And then Mariana will just be kind of like, well, this is not good. And then she just kind of goes about her life. The obvious problem here, besides the fact that Mariana is, you know, an idiot who clearly has no survival instincts, no idea how to handle dangerous patients, and also, how has she survived this long as a woman in this world? Whatever. Anyway, beyond all of that, Henry has no reason to be in the book. He's clearly not the killer. He never gets involved in the case that Mariana is trying to solve, because why would he? He's not connected to any of it. And his sole focus in the book is getting Mariana to pay attention to him. His character arc wraps up toward the end of the story. He confronts her holding a knife. He attempts to commit suicide. And then he is put into a psych ward and that's it. That's his entire story. Why does he need to be in the book? What's the point of him stalking and threatening Mariana? 
Who knows? Not the author, apparently. Henry is a red herring that is only there to provide yet another threat. But because he is so clearly not involved with the main storyline, and so clearly only a threat because Mariana is stupid, he's not someone that the reader cares about. Because we know he ultimately does not matter to the story or to Mariana even. He contributes nothing to the story. He gets written out 50 pages before the climax of the story when he's no longer necessary. And that's it. The end. Red herring number two is stalker number two, Fred. Yes, Mariana gets stalked by multiple men in this book. Fred is a PhD student at Cambridge, and from the moment he and Mariana meet on the train, he becomes obsessed with her. He keeps asking her out, he just so happens to show up wherever she goes, and he's just creepy. There's really no other way you can put it. There was actually a moment where I thought he might be involved somehow in the murders, but no, he's not involved with anything. He's just some guy who's obsessed with Mariana. Oh, and she starts liking him back. And it's implied at the end of the book that they're going to get together. Hooray! See? Stalking people does work, as long as you're not threatening to kill yourself in front of them. Gosh, what a great message to put out into the world. Thank you. Red herring number three is another creepy guy, Edward Fosca, the professor who has a secret society of beautiful female students who are being systemically killed off. Mariana thinks he is the killer. She keeps repeating this belief throughout the book, and as we have already established, he is so clearly not the killer that it's not even funny. What I was not expecting, however, was to find out that he is not involved, like, at all. A good chunk, probably around half of this book, is focused on him, and he's not even the tiniest bit involved. He's just a creepy guy who's preying on his students and speaking in the cringiest dialogue. Although, honestly, everyone's dialogue in this book is melodramatic and cringy, so he's not even special. But I am going to give you some examples anyway, because if I had to suffer through it, then so do you. Here is Mariana and Edward having dinner at his apartment, because having dinner with men you suspect are murderers, is a smart thing to do. You're a beautiful woman, she heard him say, but you have more than beauty. You have a certain quality, a stillness, like the stillness in the depths of the ocean, far beneath the waves, where nothing moves, very still and very sad. Oh, and I really need to bring up their very first conversation together. That sounds like it comes from an incredibly cheesy soap opera, dripping in cheese. Professor Fosca frowned. There was an unmistakable flash of anger in his eyes. He stared at her. Do you think you can see inside my soul? Mariana looked away. 
embarrassed by the question. No, of course not. I didn't mean. Forget it. He took another drag of his cigarette, all anger apparently gone. The word psychotherapist, as you know, comes from the Greek psyche, meaning soul, and therapia, meaning healing. Are you a healer of souls? Will you heal mine? <laughs> okay, that may have been a bit too dramatic of a reading. Anyway, in case you need definitive proof that this guy is a creep, this is what happens at the end of that very first conversation. Remember, they literally just met, and he knows Mariana thinks he was involved in the death of his student. Before she could stop him, he leaned forward, and he kissed her on the lips. It only lasted a second. By the time Mariana could react, he had already pulled back. Fosca turned and went through the open gate. Mariana heard him whistling as he walked away. This woman suspects me of being a murderer, so let me assault her real quick. That's a, that's a smart idea. And I'm not just putting words into Mariana's mouth here. She does literally say that she feels like she's been assaulted. She felt as if she had been assaulted, attacked, and that he had won somehow, succeeded in wrong-footing, intimidating her. And I mean, yeah, he did assault her for no other reason than to make her feel small. But honestly, beyond Fosca being a cringy weirdo who turns out to have no bearing whatsoever on the central mystery, the real problem with him as a storytelling device is that he just doesn't work. He's supposed to be this dark, charismatic, mysterious, dangerous man that we're supposed to be drawn to in spite of ourselves. He's supposed to be the living embodiment of the dark, sophisticated, glamorous atmosphere of this murderous, sinister academic environment. But instead, he's just not very interesting. I don't find him dangerous. I don't find him mysterious or charming or appealing in any way. I find him a melodramatic, bloviating, annoying creep. I can maybe see myself excusing his irrelevancy if he was an otherwise compelling character. But as it stands, his only interesting characteristic is maybe being involved in the systemic murders of his students. If you take that away, then the only thing you have left is a guy who preys on his students and also apparently random women he just met as well. And you'll have to excuse me if I don't find that compelling just because he also happens to be a pretentious intellectual who likes Greek mythology. Predators are a dime a dozen as are pretentious intellectuals who think they're smarter than they are. Edward Fosca is not special. And by the way, we will be getting into his character a little more later on, because if you thought I was done roasting him, then you are very wrong. 
Okay, we still have a couple more red herrings to go because, like I said, this 500-plus page book is 90% useless red herrings, and so three creepy guys are unfortunately not enough to fill up the rest of the page count. Red herring number four is obviously the maidens. Now, I have to admit that when I started reading this book, what I was actually most looking forward to was meeting these girls, the maidens, the secret society. The book is named after them. They are the primary victims. And also, a secret society of women obsessed with Greek mythology just sounds so cool, right? As you may have guessed by now, this aspect of the book also did not live up to my expectations in the slightest. The maidens appear briefly from time to time throughout the book, but every single time they just turn out to be spoiled rich girls who have no personality beyond, don't talk to me, you peasant. We never get to dig deeper into who they are and what makes them tick. They don't seem to have any meaningful connections with one another. They don't even really seem to care that their friends are being killed off and they might be next. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I was part of a secret society and my friends, who are also part of that secret society, were being viciously murdered, I might be a little scared. I might be a little concerned. And if I were also super rich and privileged, I mean, I don't know. I might think about getting on the next plane out of there. I don't know. Just a thought. Honestly, I mean, I'm not super rich, but if I were in that situation, I would be on the next plane out of there, no matter what I had to do to afford it. But yeah... Like Edward Fosca, the maidens don't actually have anything at all to do with what's going on, despite being the killer's victims. And so we end up wasting a bunch of time watching Mariana try to talk to them and try to connect with them and failing every single time. Because they're not worried about being murdered, because they're not real people, they're just caricatures. And they don't have anything important to say, because they don't know anything, because they aren't involved. <sighs> I'm sorry, I was just... That aspect of the book really, I think, is the most disappointing for me, just because I was so excited about it, you know? Anyway, our final red herring, red herring number five, is some of the servants who work at Cambridge... I'm not even going to talk about them really because they're just as pointless and boring as every other red herring. There's a better, essentially, you know, someone who helps to clean the students' rooms. She doesn't know anything. She's not connected to anything. And there's a porter who turns out to be in league with Fosca in um, preying on the students. But that's pretty much it. And collectively, we waste a fifth of this book chasing after these boring servants who are clearly not involved with murder because why would they be? So there we go. The vast majority of this book is spent with these five red herrings who are not even remotely involved with the actual mystery. And all of this adds up to what you will often see described as a twist you'll never see coming. 
My issue with these kinds of twists is that, of course, you'll never see it coming because everything else in the book was pointless and completely unrelated to said twist. That's not a fun mystery or a rewarding reading experience. It's frustrating because the ending completely negates everything else you read up to that point. And you realize that you wasted hours of your life thinking about characters and plot lines that didn't have a point. Edward Fosca, pointless character, not involved with anything, exists only to be the most obvious suspect ever. The Maidens, pointless characters who only existed because victims were necessary. They needed to die. Talk about fridging your women. Mariana Stalkers, pointless characters who seemingly only exist because the actual plot is not interesting enough or, you know, thrilling enough to keep you reading. These red herrings literally only exist to be distractions from the twist ending. And maybe I would have forgiven the author if the twist ending was some spectacular masterpiece. But since the ending is a ridiculous mess that makes no sense, I am going to go ahead and say that these red herrings add up to an incredibly lackluster, flat, and boring reading experience. All right, I know you're all dying to know the twist ending that has me so worked up, but you're going to have to be a little patient here because in order to get to the twist ending, we're going to need to talk about characters. We are going to be talking about three characters in particular, Mariana, Edward Fosca, and the murderer. Let's start with Mariana, our protagonist therapist, amateur detective, and grieving widow. She's a lot of things, but unfortunately, being a good character is not one of those things. Let's break down these aspects of her personality. My first issue with Mariana is that she is supposed to be this amazing therapist, but I honestly don't think she's emotionally qualified to be anyone's therapist, because a huge part of her character is blaming herself for literally everything. One of the most egregious examples that I think sums up this part of her character really well is this scene where Henry has stalked her all the way to Cambridge and threatens to commit suicide in front of her while holding a very large knife. He also accuses her of abandoning him, of sacrificing him because he needs her. And she's been away at Cambridge for, I believe, less than a week looking into these murders. Now, let's see what Mariana's response is. And remember, she is supposed to be a highly qualified, very experienced therapist. She blamed herself for what had happened, of course. Henry was right. She had sacrificed him and the other vulnerable people in her care. If she had been available as Henry needed her to be, it might not have come to this. That was the truth. Okay, let's break this down into bite-sized chunks of what are you talking about? None of this is reasonable. 
This is not how this works. Bite-sized chunk number one. Note that Mariana says she blamed herself for what had happened, of course, because she really does blame herself for literally everything. You know, as though she's the only therapist in existence, as though she is actually a good fit for Henry when he's looking for an individual therapist and she's a group therapist who explicitly only does group therapy. Oh yeah, and as though, you know, she can't even take like a week off without her patients stalking her and hunting her down holding big knives. And yeah, that's, that's completely reasonable. That's completely normal. Yeah, something she did could have could have stopped this, right? Bite-sized chunk number two. She agrees with Henry that she has sacrificed him and the other vulnerable people in her care, to quote her. Okay, full stop. This is something we need to talk about because what? I hope I don't need to explain that. Number one, it is not a therapist's job to be available to her clients at all times, regardless of whatever circumstances are going on in the therapist's life. Number two, people with mental health problems are obviously vulnerable, of course, but here's the thing, right? Even people with mental health problems are ultimately responsible for their own actions. You know, like not stalking people, not hunting them down with big knives, things like that. Therapists are there to assist, not provide emergency, round-the-clock healthcare. If someone is, like Henry, struggling so much with their mental health to the point where they are literally stalking people, hunting them down, and threatening to kill themselves in front of said people, then that situation has gone way, way, way beyond, oh, come to my house for a group therapy session once a week. That person should be receiving emergency mental health services from people and institutions that are qualified to provide that kind of care. At that point, it is no longer Mariana's responsibility to look after Henry, and it shouldn't be. She is his therapist, not his mother. Also, side note, again, she has been gone maybe a week. And also, Henry was being threatening and scary even before Mariana left. So on top of being really stupid and dangerous, this reasoning also makes no logical sense. Like, literally, the book opens with Mariana doing a group therapy session. And afterwards, she says to Henry, hey don't stalk me. Like, this situation had already begun before Mariana ever left. Bite-sized chunk number three. Mariana reasons that if she had been available to Henry, the situation by which she means this guy hunting her down with a knife and threatening to kill himself, then the situation might not have happened. Okay, first off, like I already said, the situation had already been escalating before she left for Cambridge. Second, again, Henry is not 
Mariana's responsibility. And as we can see, this mindset that he is her responsibility is clearly putting Mariana into incredibly dangerous situations. It is not Mariana's responsibility to fix or control Henry's behavior. Her job as his therapist is to help guide him on his journey toward confronting and dealing with his trauma. The only person who can fix Henry is Henry. If a patient is stalking their therapist and threatening self-harm, if the therapist doesn't pay more attention to them, then that therapist's response should not be, oh, hey, maybe my patient is right. The therapist's response should be, I'm sorry, but I cannot help you. This situation is beyond my control. Because Mariana's handling of this situation is incredibly stupid and irresponsible in multiple ways. First, if a guy is stalking you, then I got bad news. The situation is definitely going to escalate. He is not stalking you for funsies, particularly if he is following you all the way from London to Cambridge. I, be I believe she lives in London. That, that detail might be wrong. Anyway, number two, where is the guarantee that Henry is not also stalking and threatening other people as well? If you know someone is dangerous, then you need to do something about that situation, not only for your own sake, but also for the sake of others. I mean, sure, you know, Mariana is clearly okay with being stalked and threatened by random guys, but, you know, other people potentially, possibly, might feel differently. You know, like me. I definitely am not okay with that. <laughs> But apparently for Mariana, stalking is not in and of itself a huge issue. I mean, Fred, the college student, starts out stalking her and pressuring her to go on dates and he ends up as the endgame love interest. So there we go. Again, what an amazing therapist. Truly someone who is emotionally and mentally in a place to guide other people on their mental health journeys. My second issue with Mariana is very simple, boils down to one sentence. Why is this random person trying to play detective? Her only connection to the case is that her niece goes to Cambridge and was friends or former friends with the victims. But almost immediately after she gets there, Mariana is like, I gotta drop everything and solve this murder. Mariana, again, is a therapist, not a police officer, not a detective, not even a private detective. She is not someone who is even remotely qualified to play amateur detective. Here's the issue, right? I think from the author's perspective, he has seen or read other mystery books where people in random professions end up playing detective. And here's the thing, I have read those books as well. I recently read a mystery where a woman running a bakery solved a murder and another mystery where this lady with no training at all teams up with her husband to solve murders. One of those books was a cozy mystery and the other was a historical mystery set in the Scottish Highlands where police and detectives were not necessarily plentiful. 
cozy mysteries by their nature are not aiming for realism and most historical mysteries are not either if only because the historical setting already provides a necessary layer of abstraction but when you are aiming for realism when you are aiming for a dark twisty thriller then I'm sorry, but a therapist suddenly deciding to play detective is not really going to cut it. And I mean, in a better thriller, you could potentially make this make sense. You could have the killer draw Mariana into a mind-bending, thrilling cat and mouse game where Mariana doesn't want to be involved, but the killer keeps drawing her deeper and deeper into the game. That could really play off of the whole therapist aspect and really create an atmosphere of suspense and intrigue that keeps you reading. Or, you know, I actually, come to think of it, did a couple of months ago read a thriller called The Golden Couple, where, you know, the point of view character was a therapist, but in that book, she was, you know, the therapist for the titular golden couple. That was why she was involved in the case in the first place. But unfortunately, this is not, you know, that kind of book. What passes for suspense in this book is one of the red herrings referencing something in a way that makes Mariana suspicious. But actually, it turns out it's a complete coincidence and it doesn't mean anything. Or it's Mariana doing something incredibly stupid and facing the consequences. Which brings me to the other problem with Mariana playing detective, which is just that she's so stupid. You know, she's one of those characters that's part of that trope, too stupid to live. Yeah, she's one of those people. She thinks Edward Fosca is the murderer. And she makes sure that literally everyone knows, including him. He knows that she thinks he did it from the very first time they meet, which is like playing detective rule number one, like don't let the guilty party think you know, right? But then beyond that, she also agrees multiple times to meet up with him by herself, including one time where she literally goes to his apartment for dinner. Forget being good at being a therapist, Mariana seems exceptionally bad at basic survival as a woman. Like, you can clearly tell this is a female character being written by a man. I mean, you know, I would not go to dinner at the house of a guy I suspect to be a serial killer. But hey, maybe that's just a me thing. Maybe I'm overly paranoid. Who knows? The only other component of Mariana's personality we're given is that she is very, 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 very sad over the sudden death of her husband, Sebastian. Now, this is also an issue I had with our previous bad thriller, What Happened to the Bennets, but it is very, very hard to get invested in a character's grief over the death of a character who is idealized by the person who is grieving to the point where it doesn't feel like a real person. Allison in What Happened to the Bennets is the perfect daughter, and Sebastian in The Maidens, as portrayed by Mariana, is the perfect husband. 
He's loyal and courageous and kind and handsome and blah, blah, blah. It's not possible to feel for Mariana because we cannot believe that Sebastian was ever a real person. He doesn't feel real because he's portrayed to us via Mariana as an idea, the idea of the perfect husband. There's no moment where we feel his humanity, his fallibility, his little quirks that add up to a complete person. And so all of these paragraphs and passages where Mariana is moaning on about how much she misses him and how much she still loves him and on and on and on, none of it feels like anything. None of it resonates emotionally and it ends up feeling so repetitive and boring and just dull. Given that this is essentially the sum total of what we know about Mariana, it's probably not a surprise that she is not a very interesting character to read about. And after 500 plus pages, it gets really, really, really tiring being trapped inside her perspective the entire time. She's either sad, confused, or being stupid, and that's pretty much it. Okay, moving on, let's talk about Edward Fosca. I know that I have already said quite a bit about his character and since he doesn't ultimately have anything to do with the mystery, it might not seem like we have much to talk about, but I do still have thoughts about this character and maybe more so about what he represents. And so I just want to take a moment, a bit of breathing room to discuss Fosca before we go into the absolute insanity that is the ending of this book, the big twist. I think I've already made it pretty clear that I find Fosca to be uninteresting as a character, but it is more of a failure in execution than a failure of concept because a brooding, mysterious, Byronic professor in this dark academia setting does initially seem to be a pretty good fit, but... This specific execution of that concept just does not work for many reasons, but here's the main one from my point of view. I think the biggest issue with Fosca is that he feels like he was pulled straight from one of those alpha romances and it just does not work in a story like this. He fits the profile for those types of characters really, really well. He's arrogant. He's a know-it-all. He forces himself onto Mariana even when it's clear she doesn't like him or want to get involved with him. The problem, of course, is that this is not a romance novel. This is supposed to be a thriller that is somewhat grounded in reality. Romance novels especially romance novels that revolve around alpha type male heroes are the opposite of grounded in reality. They are explicitly fantasies and they only work as such. I do admit to reading alpha romances from time to time. I'm not too ashamed of it. It's usually billionaire romances. It's fine as fantasy, but if I ever met one of those guys in real life, right? Six pack, no, these days they have eight packs. Eight pack, six foot six (laughs) bank account with, you know, seven figures, eight figures, I don't know. Anyway, 
If I met one of those guys, I would be out of there faster than you can say alpha because I have zero interest, actually negative interest, in those kinds of guys as real life people. Trust me when I say that arrogant jerks are not actually attractive to women in real life, mostly because they are a dime a dozen and what's cool on the page is just pathetic off the page. You can look at pretty much any attempt to adapt alpha romances to shows or movies to see what I mean. Sexy on page? Cringy. Cringy, cringy on screen. And honestly, we all know these types of so-called alpha guys, right? Who are just like arrogant jerks. We have all met them. Very few of us have any compulsion to date them, but Fosca feels very much like the author read one of those types of romances and decided, oh hey, this must be what women are attracted to. Let me put one of those guys in my serial killer thriller and also let me make every woman in the book fall all over him because that's how it works in this book. All of his students are in love with him to the point where his lectures are super crowded, standing room only, and everyone applauds wildly at the end of every single class. Can I just say that it's also obvious that the author has been out of college for a long time because, come on, Students wildly applauding at the end of a lecture like it's a mediocre movie at the Cannes Film Festival? Come on, you can do better than that. Overall, Fosca is a great example of what happens when you try to create compelling characters using archetypes without understanding what makes those archetypes tick. The sad, moody, Byronic anti-hero? Not a dead archetype at all but it doesn't fit within this context. The melodramatic dialogue is cringy, not because it doesn't necessarily fit within the archetype, but because it comes across as self-indulgent, egotistic, navel-gazing nonsense when the context surrounding the dialogue is that young women are being brutally murdered. And also, the dialogue could use some workshopping, but that's beside the point. There's also a very important mismatch when it comes to the way that violence intersects with the Byronic archetype, and more specifically, the way that gendered violence intersects with the Byronic archetype. Whether we're talking about the life of historical figure Lord Byron, or literary heroes in the Byronic tradition, such as Mr. Rochester from Jane Eyre, it's important to recognize that part of the appeal is a latent violence against the women in their lives. Mr. Rochester, for example, keeps his wife locked in the attic and isn't afraid to physically manhandle her if he deems it necessary. And of course, there's the casual, vicious psychological damage that these men bring with them into the lives of women. Look at Lord Byron and his emotional abuse of his wife, or Mr. Rochester and his mind games with Jane. But, and this is an important but, the key word here when it comes to violence 
is latent. At least when it comes to the female protagonist, the implication of violence won't go anywhere because then the hero's melodramatic musings, the deep emotional pain he's carrying around, it becomes insufferable and kind of silly. The threat can be there, but the protagonist can't actually be in fear of her life. Not because that can't be sexy, and no, do not ask me to explain, I do not read those kinds of books. But if you are going to make that sexy or emotionally compelling, you need a different kind of hero. The core attraction of the Byronic hero is very simple when you boil it down, because it all comes down to this. I can fix him. I can heal him. I can free him from the prison of his pain. The Byronic hero is a deeply emotional man who is suffering from the pain that a cruel world has caused him. And the pain, the appeal, is the shared pain of existence. It hurts to exist. We've all suffered just from being alive and having to live in the world. The Byronic hero is the embodiment of that pain. The validation that, yes, it hurts to live and to be alive, but it's worth it because you have found someone who understands. Someone who feels that suffering even more deeply, even more keenly, but who chooses to keep living anyway. What I'm trying to say here is the Byronic hero is at its core an ideal that is very much rooted in abstraction, in feelings and ideas. Once you imply that the end result of that pain is horrifically murdered young women, you have to confront the essential fallacy of the Byronic hero. Because it is kind of ridiculous to pretend that you can reduce the world's existential suffering to the experiences of an incredibly privileged man who teaches Greek mythology at freaking Cambridge. It's kind of ridiculous to presume that this person's suffering makes them uniquely qualified for a grace that you would not necessarily extend to people who were not conventionally attractive white men. But ignoring that fallacy is crucial to the conception of the Byronic hero. Once you take away the ability to ignore the central conceit, then the entire thing falls apart. And all you're left with is this self-centered guy who preys on and feeds off the adoration of a bunch of 20-year-olds. And you're like, well, actually, this is just kind of sad, isn't it? The point I'm trying to make is, maybe don't try to fit your serial killer red herrings into the Byronic hero archetype, because it's probably not going to end well. And I think the real reason I'm being maybe unnecessarily harsh on Fosca is because I am usually drawn to these types of Byronic anti-heroes. Mr. Rochester, one of my literary problematic faves, and part of what draws me into the romance genre is the overabundance of these types of men. So I do think there was real potential here, but the execution was just so clumsy and heavy-handed that the end result is both unbearable and also unforgivable. 
So there we go. I am finally done talking about Edward Fosca. So let's move on to the piece de resistance, our discussion of the killer. I know you're dying to know who it is. So let's discuss. The actual killer is, drum roll please, the killer is Zoe. That's right, Mariana's niece, whose best friend Tara was the first victim. Mariana's niece, whom she basically raised. Mariana's niece, who called her to Cambridge in the first place. Zoe is the mastermind behind all of these murders. What was her motive, you might ask? Why murder her own classmates? Let me tell you the plan of this mastermind. Let me tell you about the convoluted nonsense that is her motivation and why it is one of the worst thriller plot twists that I think I have read this year. As I already said earlier, Zoe had no motive to specifically kill any of the maidens. Yes, she didn't really like them, but it wasn't to the point of wanting to systemically murder them one by one. No, her motivation for murdering these women was to lure Mariana to Cambridge so that Zoe could then kill her. And since Fosca would already be under suspicion for murdering the maidens, he would also be implicated in Mariana's murder as well. Yes, you heard correctly. Zoe came up with this convoluted plan in order to kill Mariana. Why she thought this would work, I have no idea. Mariana had no real motivation to become involved in the investigation and thereby become Fosca's next victim. The most likely scenario would have been for Mariana to try to convince Zoe to get the heck out of there. For a plan that cost so many lives, there is a conspicuous lack of logic. But I know you're just waiting for me to get to why the heck Zoe would want to kill her doting aunt slash maternal figure. So let's jump right into the deep end of this is stupid and officially makes no sense. The reason Zoe wanted to kill Mariana is because, wait for it, Sebastian, the dead husband Mariana has been grieving the entire book, was actually a really bad person. Zoe and Sebastian were in a quote-unquote relationship from the time she was 15 and at the time of Sebastian's death by drowning, he and Zoe had already come up with this elaborate plan to get rid of Mariana so that they could be together. Okay, first off, as I have already discussed, this you'll-never-see-it-coming plot twist destroys the significance of the red herrings that made up the majority of this book. The vast majority of the characters didn't matter. They could have been anybody. Most of what happened didn't matter. So the end result feels like we read a bunch of filler just to get to what the author clearly thought would be a mind-blowing plot twist. And maybe it could have been if the execution hadn't been completely botched because every single issue I had with the depiction of the ways in which mental health and crime intersect 
came to a head with the execution of this incredibly stupid plot twist. First, note that every single person in this book who either commits violence or seems to have the capacity to commit violence suffered trauma in their childhood. Henry the suicidal stalker, Edward Fosca, Sebastian, Zoe, all of these people were severely abused as children and that in turn led to crime, violence, or simply the capacity to commit crime and or violence. That in and of itself is a conversation we will have a little later, but for now, I have a bigger issue I need to point out. Consider this moment with Henry. It's from the scene where he confronts Mariana with a knife, and I think this moment illustrates in a very succinct way what my issues are with what the author is trying to imply regarding criminals who suffered from childhood abuse. I hate you, he said, sounding like a little boy, his red eyes filled with tears. I hate you. The key words here are like a little boy. There is this idea that is brought up again and again and again throughout the book that when people who suffer from childhood trauma commit crimes, it's essentially not their fault because it is their trauma that is solely responsible for making them act this way. Let me give you some examples of the book exhibiting this kind of thinking. Here's an excerpt from the beginning of the book where Mariana has just arrived at Cambridge. At this point, the only victim is Zoe's friend Tara and Mariana is reflecting on who the killer might be. Oh, and at this point, and honestly for much of the book, Mariana thinks that it must be a man. He lost touch with who he really was, and the man who lured Tara to that isolated spot was a stranger as much from himself as he was from everyone else. He was, Mariana suspected, a brilliant performer, impeccably polite, genial, and charming. But Tara provoked him somehow, and the terrified child inside him lashed out and reached for a knife. Okay, first off, victim-blaming much? Tara provoked him. And don't worry, we will actually get to that um, in a bit. But there is that train of thought again, right? It's not the killer choosing to kill Tara. It's the traumatized child inside the killer compelling him to commit the murder. I also have some snippets from Mariana's confrontation with Zoe after finding out that she's the actual killer. Snippet number one. What have you done, Zoe? Not me. Him. It was all Sebastian. I just did what he told me to. Okay, here's snippet number two. You're not a goddess, Zoe. You're a monster. If I am, she heard Zoe say, Sebastian made me one, and so did you. Here's the final snippet, snippet number three. Zoe climbed off Mariana and flipped her onto her back. She loomed over her, raising the knife. Her eyes were wild, monstrous. And you'll be remembered as just another of Edward Fosca's victims. Victim number four. No one will ever guess the truth that we killed you, Sebastian and I. Side note. I thought I was bad about putting in too many italics in my books, but... 
This author's dialogue is so full of weirdly placed emphases, and it really doesn't help that the dialogue is already so cringy. Anyway, hopefully you get the picture. It's driven home to us again and again and again that actually people who have suffered from childhood trauma can never actually be held accountable for their actions, no matter how horrific, because actually it's just the trauma that's forcing them to act this way. It's apparently a well-known fact that traumatized people don't actually have any agency, and if their inner child tells them to stab someone to death, then that's just what they have to do. That's just how these people are. Trauma, meat puppet. Hooray. We are really making steps towards destigmatizing people with mental health problems here. I find this so infuriating and in a lot of ways infantilizing. Oh, it's just your hurt inner child. Oh, it's just something you can't help doing. Oh, you sound like a lost little boy. And it really, really, really does not help that Zoe is depicted as being perfectly normal most of the time until she suddenly flips to being a crazy serial killer at the very end of the book. And it's not just bad character writing either. It's actually tied into what the author is trying to say about criminals who suffer from childhood trauma. Essentially, a key component of this traumatized people can't help being murderers idea seems to be that the traumatized person who commits so you know trivial little things like brutal knife murders is actually a completely separate person from the person who is able to function in society without i don't know hacking people to pieces consider this diary entry from early in the book I think this is supposed to be from Sebastian's point of view after he murdered Mariana's grandfather, the motive being that the grandfather, quote-unquote, discovered his relationship with Zoe. I, I don't really remember the context here, but I don't really care either. The important part I'm trying to get across is this excerpt from this diary entry. I feel in control now, writing this. At this moment in time, I am calm and sane, but there is more than one of me. It's only a matter of time before the other me rises, bloodthirsty, mad, and seeking revenge, and he won't rest until he finds it. I am two people in one mind. Part of me keeps my secrets. He alone knows the truth. But he's kept prisoner, locked up, sedated, denied a voice. He finds an outlet only when his jailer is momentarily distracted. When I am drunk or falling asleep, he tries to speak, but it's not easy. Communication comes and fits and starts. A coded escape plan from a POW camp. The moment he gets too close, a guard scrambles the message. A wall comes up. A blankness fills my mind. The memory I was striving for evaporates. But I'll persevere. I must. 
somehow I will find my way through the smoke and darkness and contact him, the sane part of me, the part that doesn't want to hurt people. Oh boy, so there you have it. Childhood trauma creates a whole other murderous self within you. And if you end up murdering people, you're not actually responsible. And no, I am not kidding. This is what the therapist who is assigned to Zoe says to Mariana in the epilogue. She tried to kill me, Theo. I don't think it's quite that simple, Mariana. Theo hesitated. He tried to kill you. She was merely his proxy, his puppet. She was entirely controlled by him. But that was only part of her, you know. In another part of her mind, she still loves you and needs you. I.e. Mariana has to forgive the poor, innocent little girl who killed three people because, wait for it, actually, Mariana is the one who is responsible for all of this. That's right. We are about to go down the path of some serious victim blaming. So hold on tight to your seats, everyone. This ride is about to get even more wild. Towards the beginning of the book, we get this passage. Yet many children grow up in terribly abusive environments, and they don't end up as murderers. Why? Well, as Mariana's old supervisor used to say, it doesn't take much to save a childhood. A little kindness, some understanding or validation, someone to recognize and acknowledge a child's reality and save his sanity. In this case, Mariana suspected that there had been no one, no kindly grandmother, no favorite uncle, no well-meaning neighbor or teacher, to see his pain, name it, and make it real. As you may have picked up on, Mariana is talking about the killer, i.e. Zoe. Remember, Sebastian did groom and abuse Zoe, but Zoe was also raised by Mariana. The implication here is that whatever kindness Mariana showed to Zoe wasn't enough, and that's why Zoe became a killer. And sure enough, here's Mariana blaming herself. Mariana had failed Zoe. She had failed to protect her. She had failed to even see, and she must take responsibility for that. Ah, yes, let me just take responsibility real quick for almost being murdered by the child I helped to raise. Like, yes, it's obviously a bad thing that Mariana didn't catch on to what was happening. Very unfortunate. But at the end of the day, the only person who is actually responsible here is the abuser, Sebastian. None of this is Mariana's fault. And if you'll notice, this echoes the quote from earlier where Mariana is saying that Tara must have provoked the murderer into killing her because that's how that works. You make a traumatized person upset just for existing, they might end up killing you. And here's the thing, right? Theo also says this about Zoe. I know it's not easy, but all I ask is that you consider, on some level, she is a victim too. Henry the suicidal stalker is a victim. Edward Fosca the creepy predator is a victim. Zoe the serial killer is a victim. I'm sorry, but you do have to draw the line somewhere. There's no such thing as a perfect victim, and that's, you know, the other 
end of the scale here. People do not have to be perfect for them to be regarded as victims. But when you reach the point where you are butchering three innocent people, excuse me if I no longer consider you a victim. Excuse me if I no longer care about your sad childhood or your former status as a victim. At that point, you are no longer a victim. You are an abuser who's turning your pain onto others, and that is inexcusable. Like, okay, I have trauma too, right? But if I ever become, I don't know, an axe murderer, then feel free to no longer consider me a victim. At that point, you do not need to care about my childhood or my young adulthood or my sob stories. All you need to care about is getting me off the streets so I don't hurt anyone else. And finally, I'm just going to go back briefly to the author's assumption that every serial killer, every person who commits unthinkable acts of violence and aggression against others must have had a tragic childhood. Here's Mariana voicing this exact line of thinking. For Mariana, this was the clue, the suffering, the sense that these monsters were also in pain. Thinking about them as victims allowed her to be more rational in her approach and more compassionate. Psychopathy or sadism never appeared from nowhere. It was not a virus infecting someone out of the blue. It had a long prehistory in childhood. Okay, first off, that is probably the least rational approach I have ever heard. Secondly, I am really, really tired of this view that all serial killers are people we should actually feel sorry for. You know, they actually had sad childhoods. It's literally not true. If you are into true crime at all, then you know there are plenty of people with perfectly normal childhoods who went on to become, as Mariana would say, monsters. Fundamentally, what makes people kill or hurt others is not trauma. From what I've observed in both myself and in others, trauma is most often self-destructive. It drives you to hurt yourself in an effort to understand why others have hurt you. Killing or hurting others is an entirely different phenomenon psychologically. It's driven by a need for control, a need to see other people as weaker than yourself. And what is the ultimate form of control? It's having control over others, over their bodies, over their lives. It's bullying, essentially. And after reading probably thousands and thousands of true crime cases, my conclusion is just that it's all incredibly pathetic. I don't feel bad for these people, the people who kill, who hurt others. I mean, yes, I feel bad for the victims, but for the killers, it's just pathetic. You really, really couldn't think of any other way to deal with your own neuroses and your own 
impulses than to destroy or take someone else's life? Seriously? That's just kind of sad. Speaking of true crime, I feel the need to bring up something I learned in my own forays into the subject, which is this. It is not easy to kill people, mentally or physically. For example, stabbing someone is not only messy, it's incredibly difficult to do, much less do over and over and over again. The act of murder is not something you can dismiss as an unfortunate side effect of trauma. Not to get too personal or anything here, but at my lowest, my rock bottom, I couldn't even hurt myself, let alone begin to think of hurting others. Because again, trauma alone does not drive you to kill. And pretending that Zoe's multiple violent murders can be chalked up to, well, her childhood sucked, is just wrong. And I think it's an incredibly dangerous and irresponsible and insulting message to be putting out into the world. Alright, so there you have it. Another ridiculously in-depth discussion about a bad thriller, but... I do have to note that this episode's thriller and last episode's thriller are definitely bad in very different ways. What happened to the Bennets had, in my opinion, no real redeeming features and it was incredibly difficult to get through. This book, The Maidens, was definitely different. The premise is a good one. I found it incredibly intriguing. And the characters could have used a lot more development, but I think they had definite potential hidden beneath all of the author's nonsensical opinions and worldviews. And honestly, the potential to be better is why The Maidens was so disappointing. I really did go into it expecting a good thriller. I went into it expecting to enjoy myself. And instead, I got this mess of a story that made me feel like I wasted my time reading it. The good news for me is that I read it on a plane and my only other alternative would have been taking a nap instead, so... I guess I didn't exactly waste any valuable time. Although, honestly, the nap might have been a better investment. But then this miniseries wouldn't have happened, so I guess it all worked out. For a better thriller dealing with similar themes of mental health and violence and generational trauma, I would absolutely recommend Sharp Objects by Gillian Flynn. I blew through that book earlier this month, and honestly, I liked it much more than Gone Girl, which may be an unpopular opinion, but I truly did love Sharp Objects. Although I will say there were definitely moments that made me deeply, deeply uneasy and even a little nauseated. And surprisingly, those moments had nothing to do with the actual murders. So anyway, very compelling, very morbid but still very, very fascinating book. So there is my better thriller recommendation. Go read Sharp Objects. I know there is an HBO series as well, and I'm definitely going to check that out. Okay, that is 
finally everything for this week. You guys get two episodes this week. And I will be back again next week with our next bad thriller. Remember, if you have any suggestions for bad thrillers for the week after that, please go to the Substack book suggestions post link (laughs) in the description and drop a comment. Like I said, I can definitely find a bad thriller on my own, but I would really appreciate any suggestions both for this mini-series and for the mini-series that we'll be doing again definitely in the future. This has been the 2AM Book Review Club. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'll be back next week at 2AM. Until then, have a great week, and happy book travels! (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.